Boy, Marcus's voice is like butter in that video, man. Just, uh, <laughs> just letting you ladies know, I think he's single too, so just, just throwing that out there. Is he still over here? Yeah, he was standing over there. I, get, I think he split. But anyways, hey, uh, this weekend we're going to be starting a new book of the Bible. We're going to start it off a little bit different, uh, but I'll get to that here in a second. Um, before I get to that, uh, I just want to tell you, Kyle and I and Patrick and Dave, we left uh, Sunday night a week ago. We left Sunday night, got to Boston around 10-something, and then got into uh, Concord, New Hampshire. That's where we always stay. It's like the capital of New Hampshire. Stayed there. I got in there about midnight, and from Monday at 8 o'clock in the morning until Wednesday at 10 o'clock at night, we worked the whole time. Went to the, different, the three different churches that we support and um, did a lot of leadership training, met with all the different teams, met with their pastors. We even reworked one of their PA systems in one of their buildings and uh, had to drive 30 minutes to go get a certain kind of speaker they needed, and, and me and Patrick and Kyle just reworked their whole PA and just worked a lot. Uh, but I wanted to tell you, when we are up there, you guys are like superheroes to those churches. Um, the fact that a big church in the South would be interested in what those churches in New England are doing, they're completely alone up there, completely alone. And um, when we were up in Burlington, if you don't know anything about Burlington, Vermont, it's a beautiful city. Beautiful city, educated city. Um, um, everyone's just prettier there for some reason. Like, you're walking around, it's like, why does everyone look better than me in Vermont? You know, like, uh, they all drive Subarus. It's just a really, you know, neat little town. So... Um, I don't know. But anyway, it just it's true. So uh, when we were up in Burlington, though, um, just getting to talk with them a little bit, uh, the biggest church in Burlington, Vermont, 100 people. That's the church you guys support. And going up there and just seeing the struggles that they have, right, and just seeing how hard it is to minister to people who don't, don't need anything, right? And then you go down to Manchester. That's the other church, uh, one of the other churches we support in Manchester, New Hampshire. And they have 100 heroin overdoses a month, in Manchester. It's a city the same size as Murfreesboro, actually a little bit smaller. A hundred heroin overdoses a month, a completely different environment. And we're talking to them. And here's what's kind of neat about them, guys. Um, they have been busting at the seams for their building. They have about 5,000 square feet in a storefront in Manchester, New Hampshire, right downtown. And uh, they've been consistently running over 200 people, which for that, that city is huge. That's the biggest church in that area. They've been consistently running 200. They're out of room. They're out of kids space. And uh, they told us when we were up there, they asked our opinion. They said, hey, we have the opportunity of, of getting the, the place next to us, keeping our place and then kind of like, like what we did here and expanding into more space. And um, I looked at their budget and they're about $1,000 short a month to get into the space, but they desperately need it or they can't really grow anymore. And it hit me at the five o'clock service. I was over there worshiping with my wife um, during music, during the worship time, and it hit me. I'm like, wow, we're sending them a check for 10 grand. They will only be $2,000 short for the year of moving into that space and getting what they need because of the money that you guys give to this church that they should be able to get into that space. So I'm gonna call their pastors um, after service day and just be like, man, I think you should do it. You should move forward and they'll be able to expand and to grow. And I'm telling all you guys this because, guys, you do that for them. And when I meet those people up there, that's fine to clap for that. But listen, when I meet those people up there, they look at me, they look at Kyle and Patrick and Dave, and literally they will hold you on the shoulders or grab you by the cheeks and say, tell your church thank you, like with tears in their eyes, because they're alone up there. And um, so I want to tell you, thank you. 
thank you from the bottom of my heart. It is such an honor to get to go up there and serve with them and to see that this is bigger than Murfreesboro. This is bigger than just us right here. This is going way beyond us. In an area, listen, in an area, Burlington, Vermont is 1% Christian. They claim 1% Christianity, 1%. Manchester's a little bit better. They claim about 3%. And then Salem, Massachusetts is about 3% Christian. That's it, that's it. Down here, we have, you know, 32, 33%, big old churches, does not exist up there, just does not exist. And so, uh, thank you guys, I really appreciate it. It was a phenomenal trip, a great trip. Did a lot of work, super tired, but it was really, really good. So we're up in Burlington, this is my last story, and then we'll get to what you're actually here for. Um, up there in Burlington, and that's where Bernie Sanders was the mayor for a long time, and, and he has an office right there about a block away from their church, and they say he always goes to the Ben and Jerry's on the corner. Ben and Jerry's started in Burlington too, by the way. Another fun fact, there's no drive throughs in Burlington. There's a law that says no restaurants can have drive throughs Anyways, so if you're in a hurry in Burlington, you're just sorry. Uh, <laughs> So we're walking by the Ben and Jerry's and I see an old bald white guy in Ben and Jerry's. And I'm like, it's Bernie. Like I'm gonna run in and get a selfie with him. It wasn't Bernie Sanders. But then I thought, if I still got the selfie, would you guys even know? So I thought about like getting a selfie from behind him, just a bald white guy and be like, you know, me and Bernie. And, um, and then I thought that'd be kind of rude, right? So uh, I didn't do it. That's the story. That's the whole story. I thought I saw Bernie. I didn't. That was it. So... I'm glad that I'm back home. So um, we are getting into the book of Ruth. Now, let me tell you how we're going to do this today. I'm going to do it a little bit different. If you're reading the Bible or studying the book of Ruth, which is an extremely short book of the Bible, you cannot fully appreciate the book of Ruth unless you appreciate and know a little bit about the book that came before it, the book of Judges. Now, if you have a Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. But so what I plan to do today is this, a little bit different than what I normally do. I'm going to give you a brief overview of the entire book of Judges, real quick. Focus a little bit on the last three chapters, but just tell you a little bit about what the world looked like during the time of the Judges. And the reason why that is important is when we get to the book of Ruth, which is a gorgeous book of the Bible, it's beautiful, it's so it's just a very good book of the Bible. Very uplifting, very positive. This great redemption story, it's, it's awesome. But unless you know how bad the world looked around that, you don't really appreciate how great of a book of the Bible Ruth is. So my point today, or what I hope to convey is this, is that even in the worst environments imaginable, God is still working out a plan to save his people. Even in the worst culture, even in the worst areas, even in the worst circumstances, God is doing something. He's got a big plan. He's got a big idea if we will just trust him, okay? So I'm going to pray. Uh, we'll get into this, and it's going to be a little bit different. It's going to be a, a, a quite a bit of a history lesson, but it's very fascinating. At least I think it is, okay? So you should have a notes handout in front of you. Um, if you have your Bible in front of you, you can peruse through Judges a little bit when I go through it, or you can you know, kind of glance over Ruth if you want to, or just read Ruth if you get really bored with me this morning, whatever. And, uh, but we'll dive into this and we'll see what happens, okay? Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. Uh, God, thank you so much for what you're doing in the churches in New England, Lord, that we get to work with, Lord. We pray right now, God, that you bless the church in Salem, Remix Church, Pray that you, got, you bless uh, Life Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. 
And pray, Lord, that you bless Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont, God. We also pray that you bless every church in our city, Lord, that you continue to grow your kingdom through us and work through us and that you're patient and gracious with us, God. Lord, we love you and we thank you, God. Lord, let us have an open mind today. Let us approach your word, God, just with a a hunger and uh, an open heart. And Lord, let us receive something, Lord. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so when you get into the book of Judges, the book of Judges is interesting. It's a historical book. It's not a theological book of the Bible, which means we don't get much theology from the book of Judges. We get a history lesson from the book of Judges. Now, where this era falls in Jewish history is extremely important. It starts about 1,500 years before Jesus, B.C., 1,500 B.C., to about 1,100 B.C., so a span of about roughly 400 years. Now, before the time of the judges, it was the time of Moses and Joshua, okay? So Moses leads the Jews out of Egypt. He never makes it to the promised land, so his protege, a guy named Joshua, takes over and leads the Jews into the promised land, right? The area that God has given them, all right? Once Joshua's time comes to a close, society kind of falls apart a little bit. And so for 400 years or so, It is lawless. It is godless. We're going to go into that. It's a terrible time. And then after that time, we get King Saul and then eventually King David. And so there's kind of this sandwich of judges in between these two very glorious times of Jewish history. Now, here's something important to know about the book of Judges. If you were just picking up the Bible, reading Judges, and judging Christianity based off that book of the Bible, you would think we were crazy. The reason why is a lot of awful, terrible things happen in the book of Judges. But here's the thing. Sometimes the Bible is descriptive, not prescriptive. What that means is this. Sometimes the Bible just tells us what's going on during a culture, not telling us to do what was going on. And as we get into the book of Judges, where there's rape and murder and civil war, we're not to do these things. We're to learn not to do these things. So Judges records, the book of Judges, records the spiritual and moral decline of a people who had this awesome, great beginning, right? Liberated from captivity, put into the promised land, and then we see the degradation of society where they become virtually a completely immoral group of people. And even though God raised up a bunch of great leaders during this time, Most notable are Samson. You guys, most people know who Samson is, right? Pushed down the pillars, killed all these people after he had really messed up. We we, we also read of great leaders like Deborah, one of the first great female leaders of the Bible that rose up and was a judge and was very, very influential. But even though God raised up some great leaders, we see that a lot of the great leaders fell and even became a part of the problem. So the entire culture was in a wreck at this time. The book of Judges also demonstrates what happens when a group of people who know who God is decide not to do what God says. That's the main point. So if we abandon his commands and if we pursue gods that we create, the result will be utter chaos. Are we not repeating history right now, guys? When we abandon the true God and start to make our own gods, our own idols, the outcome is utter chaos. So the book of Judges 
is where a group of people will end up if they turn their back on God. This is history, okay? This has happened. We also see the grace of God, though, in the book of Judges. Well, how so? Well, the fact that the people of God, the the Israelites, even made it through this time was miraculous because left to their own devices, they would have completely destroyed themselves. So we see that God's hand was on them, even though they were acting like a bunch of idiots, right, and pushing him away, because only the gracious intervention of God could have helped them make it through the depths that they had gone to, their pagan beliefs, their moral decay, their complete hedonism and rebellion. Only God could save them from that, okay? The other thing we see in Judges is this. We see a lack of good leadership. We see that this was a time when they had no good, strong, strong, godly leadership. And there's a repetitive phrase all throughout Judges where it says there was no king in Israel. And that points to the fact they just didn't have any good leadership. They didn't have anyone stand up and lead them the way that they were supposed to go. And so throughout the book of Judges, having hundreds of years of bad leadership, at the end of this book of the Bible, you guys, some of you have probably read this, they said, God, give us a king. And God was like, I'm your king, follow me. And they said, no, 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 we want a human king. We want to look like these other areas and have our own human king. So God gives him a guy named Saul. And if you know anything about Bible history, Saul didn't end up being a very good king. And then we got King David. But the problem was this, much like today, we tend to look for salvation in a human leader and not God. You guys remember when we were going through 2016, the election cycle, and I got nothing against Hillary Clinton, nothing against Donald Trump. I, I don't, I don't you know, hate either one of them or anything like that. But whenever we look for salvation in a human leader, we are destined for failure. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't follow certain men and women as long as those certain men and women are following God. We should follow them. That's fine. Pastors and leaders and matriarchs and patriarchs, we should be following those individuals as long as they are following God. But ultimately, our hope and our salvation is not found in a person. It is found in God. But I'm not sure if we've completely figured that out yet in our culture, okay? So, as you go through the book of Judges, if you ever decide to read it, right, when you get to the last three chapters we kind of see the crescendo. We really start to see how bad this culture has gotten when you get to the tail end of this book. Now, here's here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna briefly show you what happened in chapters 19, 20, and 21 at the very end of Judges. Now, in chapter 19, there's this story of this anonymous couple. We don't know their names, but we know what tribe they're from, and we kind of know where they're going, but beyond that, we don't know much about them. There's this couple that was traveling through back to their hometown, and they were told to not go through these certain alien territories, not like Area 51 alien, but like hostile to what they are, right? That they were not supposed to go towards these alien territories, but go around them on their way back home. This couple didn't listen, and they went the shortest, easiest route through territory that they shouldn't have gone through. They find themselves in a city one night, and no one will take them in. They have nowhere to stay. Eventually, an older man comes out and says, hey, I'll put you up for the night. Come on, stay with me. And he was married, and he had a female slave. Now, in the middle of the night, it says that a a mob of perverted men, that's what the Bible calls them, this mob of perverted men, shows up to the man's house, knocks on the door, and says, hey, we saw the couple that you brought in. Send us the man. We want to rape him. 
right? We want, to, we want to violate this man. Well, the man who was in the house cared more about what the people thought about him than he did about what's doing what's honorable. And he said, well, I don't want to send you the man. Why don't I send out my virgin daughter and, and my female slave? Imagine the state of someone's mind. Imagine how far you've gotten immorally when you're willing to give up your virgin daughter just so people won't think bad of you, right? So that's what he does. He gives up, not his virgin daughter, but he gives up his female slave so they won't rape the man and they take this woman and it says in the Bible that they rape her all night, that they beat and abuse this poor woman all night. So after the worst night that a woman could possibly imagine, this female slave, this concubine, made her way back to the old man's house. I don't know if maybe she got a couple of knocks on the door and then collapsed, but he came out, found her there, tried to save her life, couldn't. She died. Listen to this. This is in the Bible. So this old man took this woman's body and cut it up into 12 pieces and mailed it to all the tribes of Israel, basically to send a message that this awful injustice had happened. I mean, this is crazy. This guy's mind, his, his, his moral compass is so far off that he thought he was doing something honorable by cutting up this woman, sending her out to all these different places and saying, this is a problem, right? My, my concubine was murdered. And he was the one that sent her out to be raped. And so here's what happens. So in chapter 19, we see violence, we see rape, we see murder, and because of this, it is going to lead to a civil war. The rape of the concubine led to one of the 12 tribes of Israel, a group called the Levites. They now, because they heard of this, they wanted to wage war against the tribe that the mob came from. That was the tribe of Benjamin. But before they just went to war, civil war, they brought the young couple in and they said, hey, tell us what happened. What happened? How did this start? And the young man that was in a, listen to this, this is so, the symbolism is so important. This young man told them the story, but he omitted a couple of very important facts. One of the facts he omitted was he should have never been in that town in the first place. He was told to avoid this area and go around it, but because it was the easy way to go, he ended up in a place he should have never been. So he was in a place he shouldn't have been. He omitted that fact. The other fact that he omitted was that the mob wanted to kill him, but he was too much of a coward to go out and face it. He sent a woman to be murdered in his place. And he omitted that fact too. So because he omitted these facts, this one tribe said, well, this is terrible. We got to do something about it. Let's go to war. Let's take out this other tribe. So here's what happened. The tribe of Benjamin, who had committed this awful act, was here. The other 11 tribes got together, and they said, hey, we're going to go to war with you unless you repent for this, unless you make it right. Well, the tribe of Benjamin said, we're not sorry, right? We're not going to do anything. In fact, we have 26,000 soldiers and 1,400 special ops. That's not in the Bible, but it said special kind of soldiers, so I... Yeah, anyways, so we have 26,000 soldiers and 1,400 special ops, and we're ready to fight. Little did they know, the other 11 tribes had 400,000 soldiers, right? A lot more than them, and so they went to battle. They had three huge battles, 
Hundreds of thousands of lives lost, right? A civil war amongst essentially brothers that was going on, and it wasn't until the third war and hundreds of thousands of people lost that they finally go, we should pray about this. We should talk to God about this. So finally, after the third battle, God is brought into the equation, all right? So chapter 19, rape and murder. Chapter 20, civil war. Chapter 21, they're like, oops, we shouldn't have done this. And so the aftermath of the civil war, after it stopped, was there was a lot of guilt, there was a lot of remorse, there was a lot of brothers and sisters that were lost in battle, there was a lot of people killed, a lot of houses burned down, terrible stuff. And so rather than allow this one tribe to become extinct, because they knew that God didn't want any of the tribes of Israel to be extinct, they're to be preserved. So to make sure that they didn't become extinct, they put a plan together. And the plan was going to be to rape, pillage, and plunder another group of people and bring their virgins in so the tribe of Benjamin can make it. Now, here's what we see. And this brings up something in us. My old pastor used to tell me all the time, it doesn't matter what the circumstance, there is never an excuse to sin. And what we do sometimes is we look at things and we say, well, you know, uh, I haven't been faithful to the Lord because I've got these other things to pay for. Or, you know, if I wouldn't have cheated on my taxes, we wouldn't have got this money back and we needed this. Or, well, I had to say this at work or I would have lost my job. And we sometimes try to justify doing the wrong thing for a quick fix. And here's the thing about trying to sin to fix other sin. You just dig the hole deeper. You just dig it deeper. There is never, ever, ever, ever an excuse to sin. There's never a reason to do the wrong thing, okay? But that's what they, they, that's what they thought their option was. So the Israelites, eventually, after hundreds of thousands of people lost, after all these terrible things that had happened, it says in chapter 21 that they look up to God and they say, God, why did you let this happen? What were you doing? And they weren't taking any responsibility for themselves It's like when people come up, and guys, I'm not trying to be mean here, but we have people all the time who come up to us and they say, why is God letting my marriage fall apart? And I'm like, dude, you cheated on your wife three times. God had nothing to do with that. That was you. You're the reason why your marriage is falling apart. Why is my economics, like like why are the, 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 the financial part of my family, why is it falling apart? Why is God doing this? And I'm like, well, you don't work. It's hard to make money when you don't work. God has nothing to do with that. I would say, in fact, the Bible says if a man doesn't want to work, you shouldn't be allowed to eat, but people get offended by that. And so whenever we blame things on God, what we do is we don't take any responsibility. So here's the thing, guys. The degradation of our society and the results of the decision that we made to not follow God's commands, that's not his fault. That's our fault. That's our fault. And we live in a culture that loves to blame shift, which means it is never my fault. I'm in this place because my parents, you know, they got divorced. I'm in this situation because of the government. I'm in this place because of culture. Here's the thing, Christians in here, and if you're not a Christian, just ignore me for a second. If you're a Christian in here, when you stand in front of God Almighty on Judgment Day, you're not going to be, you're not going to be able to blame your lack of relationship with Him on anyone else. We're going to have to take responsibility. You're not going to be able to say, I was my pastor, he's a jerk, he doesn't even wear shoes, right? Like, you're not going to be able to do that because Jesus is going to say, well, I don't wear shoes much either. So anyways, 
<laughs> so, but you're not going to be able to blame those things on anyone else. We have to take responsibility. We have to take ownership. Let me get a little bit further on a rant here just for a second. Whenever we look up to God and say, God, why are there starving children in Africa? I feel like God looks back down and says, hey, I entrusted you guys with the earth and all these stewardship and all these resources that I gave you. Why are there starving kids in Africa? I feel like God looks back down at us and says, I have left this in your hands. You are supposed to do something about your brothers and sisters that don't have enough. That is our responsibility. Okay, sorry. So in order to preserve one group of people, the Israelites thought it would be good to kill other people. So to preserve this one tribe, right, where they had killed a lot of these people, listen, they had killed all but 400 men in the tribe of Benjamin, okay? So in order to, to kind of help this tribe grow back up numerically, the other 11 tribes went and found a group of people who refused to take part in the Civil War. They went and killed their men, women, and children, and the only ones that they spared were 600 virgin women. They took these virgin women back, gave them to the 400 men. I'm sure that worked out really well. Probably more bloodshed and arguing and fighting, right? So they gave these women over to these 400 men like property, and they did this in order to preserve a vow that they had with God. So to preserve a one vow to God, they broke a slew of other vows that they made to God. And so we can see how bad this culture has gotten. So to make a long story short, as the Israelites continued to make up the rules as they went along, as they tried to find loopholes in all of God's commands, their plans failed over and over and over again. Here's what had happened. Listen, I should have made this bold. I don't know why I didn't. Wickedness had become democratized. Let me explain what that means. They allowed the culture to determine what was right and what was wrong. Sound familiar? Not the word of God. They let people vote. Hey, what do you guys think is right? Okay, that's right. What do you think is wrong? That's wrong. So wickedness had become democratized. The vulnerable had been taken advantage of and there was no justice. The people who knew better didn't do what they knew was right and chaos ensued. Complete chaos ensued. Now, here's how the book of Judges ends. This is amazing. Look at how the book of Judges ends. The book ends with this verse. It says, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. Some translations say, everyone did what was right in their eyes. Again, if this is not our culture today, and so this is very important. Please, listen again. As personal sin escalates, it changes the culture, which changes the city, which changes the nation, which changes the people. Where does it start, though? With me. It starts with me. And that light over there. <laughs> so as personal sin escalates, it changes culture, it changes our city, it changes our country, and ultimately it changes humanity, okay? So in Judges 19 and 21, it's crazy, it's nuts, it's violent, it's gory, but it is the inspired word of God. Why? 
because the book of Judges warns us what can happen if we turn our eyes away from God. Why is the book of Judges there? To show us where not to end up. So we see the chaos of a culture that grows callous to God. Here's what happens. As people ignore him, the moral lines get blurry, and then the moral lines eventually obliterate. So what happens is this, is we become desensitized to the things around us, we also become desanitized. What that means is this, the less and less that we care about the grossness in the world, the more and more we become gross. We become desanitized, okay? So, now you know the culture in which the story of Ruth that we're gonna study for the next four weeks, we know now the culture of what it looked like when this story went on. Now, what's interesting, in the middle of all that chaos, in the middle of all that civil war, in the middle of rape and pillage and plunder and all these evil things that were going on, after reading about the dark and depressing days of the judges, if you're reading the Bible for the first time, when you get into Ruth, it's like a breath of fresh air. You get into Ruth and you're like, whoo, I needed something positive, right? Because that was a pretty rough book of the Bible. Now, the book of Ruth is relatively short, but it displays great examples of kindness, of patience, of faith, the proper way to treat women, a good example of godly leadership. We get all of this from the book of Ruth. We also don't know who wrote the book of Ruth. If you go back and study Jewish documents, a, a set of Jewish documents called the Talmud, it says that Samuel wrote the book of Ruth. Now, we don't know who wrote the book of Ruth, and it's really not that important. What's important, though, is we do know the backdrop, and we just talked about the backdrop. It says in Ruth that this took place during the time of the judges. So this extremely beautiful, delicate book that we're about to study for the next month took place in the most chaotic environment you can possibly imagine. Not just a chaotic and immoral environment, it says that there was a famine going on. So not only was the world falling apart morally, it was falling apart economically, agriculturally. It was a bad time to live, okay? And so what we see in the book of Ruth, talking about grace, is we see tremendous grace through the book of Ruth. One of the main characters is a woman named Naomi. When we get into this, you'll get to know this character very well. Naomi thought that God was punishing her. She was like bitter towards God, right? She even walks into town and she says, don't call me by my real name, call me by this other name, which basically means she's bitter towards God and God is punishing her. But we see throughout the story that God restores her and gives her even more than she's ever had before, that God takes care of her. We especially see the grace of God with the main character, Ruth. Ruth is an outsider coming into this Jewish culture. She works at the lowest possible level that anyone can work at. Her husband has just died. Life is not good for Ruth, but she honors God. She honors her family, and God does amazing things with Ruth. As we see here in a little bit, even King David and even Jesus come from the bloodline of Ruth. And so the genealogy of Ruth, the fact that the Jews got their greatest king, one of the most notable characters of the Bible came from Ruth's bloodline. And so we see that even in tough times, in evil societies, that God is moving, that God is taking care of his people. So what we need to do is this. We learned this from the book of Ruth. 
When we're in the middle of our situation, however bleak it looks, however terrible it seems, that sometimes we have to step back and know that regardless of the fact that I can't even see the light at the end of the tunnel, that we have to trust that God is doing something, that he has a plan, that he's doing something bigger than what we realize right now in the middle of this situation. We also see extraordinary love in the book of Ruth, that God shows people in this book benevolence and kindness and grace and, and, and an extreme love. Not only does God show this extreme love, we see this extreme love between each other. Just like the video shows, the way that this older gentleman, Boaz, takes in this younger widow, Ruth, and loves her and treats her with respect and honor in the way a woman should be treated. We see righteousness and godliness. And it's just purity, a great book of the Bible. We also see this idea from Boaz as the family redeemer. Now, we'll talk about that a lot in the next couple of weeks. But Boaz is a man that uses his power to redeem the life of a poor widow. Now, what this is, is it's a foreshadowing. It's an example. It's a precursor, if you will, to Jesus. So when we read about how Boaz takes in this woman that should not have been taken in, we start to see kind of a foreshadowing of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And what's neat about that is this. Eventually, Jesus comes from the bloodline of Boaz and Ruth. So that's what happens. Isn't that neat? We see that Jesus's humble beginnings start with a woman who is an outsider, an alien. So again, talking about this culture that took place 1,500 years before Christ was even born, 3,000, almost 4,000 years ago, we see that humanity hasn't changed a lot. Back then, just like now, we see that culture looks dark. The future is sometimes uncertain. I don't know how you feel in this room. Maybe you don't feel like this. Maybe I'm the only one. But sometimes you look around and you think, how are we ever going to bring people back to God? You see how far we've gone, how unrighteous of a culture we live in, right? We say, man, how are we ever going to bring this back to what it needs to be? But here's what the book of Ruth reminds us of, that in the middle of chaos, in the middle of hunger, in the middle of confusion, that we, I'm talking about you and I, not the people of the Bible right now, I'm talking about us, we are offered peace, sustenance, and clarity if we will just be committed to God, God's ways, God's direction in the middle of our tough times. Let me tell you a story real quick before I close. So we're up in New England, right? And we're meeting with all these different people. And the last night we were there, we're in downtown Burlington, and we're meeting in the basement of, there's this really cool coffee shop, it's called The New Moon, and it's actually a couple of Christians that own it, and they let anyone who's a Christian, like a, a church or anything, use the space below for free. So we're downstairs, and there's about 40 of us in this room, right? A bunch of the servants and volunteers from this church. And um, we're down here, and we're teaching, and we're doing like a Q&A. And, you know, they're asking strategy questions, you know, like asking Patrick, like, you know, well, how do you do this with children's? And asking Kyle, how do you do this with worship? And Dave, what do you do with small groups? And we're asking all these questions. And the last question that was asked at the end of the night, an older guy in the church raises his hand, and he says, Corey, you told us that God told you to come up here and help our churches out. 
He says, what is God telling you to tell us now? It was the most spiritual question, and I was so humbled because this church genuinely wanted to know what God wanted them to do, and they expected me to tell them. And so I'm sitting there, and I thought for a minute, not even a minute, I might have thought for two seconds because I knew what my answer was, and I started to get kind of teary-eyed, and I looked at this guy, and I said, look, I'm glad that we can help you with processes and money and strategy. I'm glad we can do all that. But I said, I believe the reason why we came up this year was to look at you guys in the eyes and tell you not to grow tired of doing the right thing. I said, keep pushing forward. I know you're only 100 people in a city of 150,000. I know that. I know there's only 1% in your city that claims to be Christians. I know that you're in a liberal town that doesn't need God. I know all those things. But I said, God has put this church here and you're here for a reason. And I said, you gotta keep pushing forward. And the whole plane ride back after he asked me that question, I thought about you guys. And I thought about this church and I thought about our city. And I don't know where you're at right now. And I'm not trying to emotionally manipulate you or pull at your heartstrings or get some kind of response out of you. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I wanna tell some of you this. And I don't know who I'm talking to. Maybe no one, maybe just me. You cannot give up. You cannot give up. It's not just your soul that is on the line. It is your family. It is your next door neighbor. It's that barista at Starbucks. It's the people that you work with. Listen, listen. The progress may be slow, it may not be to the level that we want it to be. We may only be winning 30% of our community, but that leaves 70% of our city that doesn't have a relationship with Christ. We have work to do and we cannot give up. Is it hard? God, yes, it's hard. Imagine it up there where only 1% of your community has your back but we cannot keep pushing forward. We cannot quit pushing the ball forward. We must advance. Listen, when I flip to the back of my Bible, it tells me who wins. We do. We do. God wins. I'm of the mindset because the Bible tells it that Christ wins that there will be a great revival before he comes back, that everyone will have the opportunity to accept the gospel before he comes back. But if that's going to happen, we have much work to do. I know some of you are financially hurting. Be faithful to the Lord with your money and keep, keep moving forward. I know some of your marriages are struggling at the risk of sounding whatever, it is not God's desire for you to give up on your marriage. It is not God's desire for you to give up on your family. It is not God's desire for you to give up on your neighborhood or your school system or your place of employment or MTSU. Listen, I'm up there in New England and they say, tell us a little bit about your town. We're actually very similar to Burlington in a lot of ways, except for they just have a lot more money and Subarus than we have. But it's a college town, the University of Vermont's right there down the street. It's about the same size as us. Very similar in a lot of ways. And they said, well, man, I bet you guys got tons of students at your church. And I'm like, well, in a church of 3,000, we maybe have 400 college students. And that sounds like a lot. 
until you take into equation that there's 30,000 of them right down the road. That's not winning. We have much work to do. Much work to do. Many people need to hear the truth. But listen, if they're going to hear the truth, you can't give up. You got to keep moving forward. And I don't know who that is for today. It may just be me and someone in the back over here. I don't know. But some of you need to hear. The reason why it's in the Bible, the reason why the Bible says don't grow weary in doing good is because God knows it's easy to grow weary doing good. Would you bow your heads with me? As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, if you're in here and you are not a Christian, you're not a believer, I want to tell you how happy and honored we are that you chose to be here today. I also want to tell you this, if you're not a Christian in here, look for the truth. I'm not telling you to look for Christ. I'm telling you to look for the truth. Because if you look for the truth, I personally believe you will find Christ. But keep looking for the truth. Have an open mind, have an open heart. That's my only advice to you if you're a non-believer in here. Have an open mind and an open heart. If you are in here and you are a Christian, you are a believer, and you are struggling, I'm not saying you're falling into temptation, I'm not saying you're doing anything wrong, but you are tired, you are worn out, you are constantly battling that temptation, that lust, that greed, whatever. Maybe you're constantly battling with finances, you're constantly battling with people at work or your school, whatever the case may be, you're getting worn out. I just want to tell you, for whatever it's worth, do not stop. Keep pushing, keep praying, keep reading, keep talking to people. Don't give up on people. Don't give up on yourself. And of course, don't give up on God. Even though we can't see it now, guys, the Lord is working. He's doing things. He's doing things in you. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I heard a botanist say one time, plants grow the best in the darkest soil. <laughs> Father, God, I love you. Lord, I don't know who I'm speaking to, God. Maybe there's just a couple of us, Lord. But Lord, I just pray that you give us strength. Father, as we take communion today and we remember that you gave your only son not so we could fail, God. You gave your only son so we could succeed, so we could have life and have it in abundance, so that we would have the strength to not give up. Lord, as we ask for you to forgive us and be with us, Lord, as we take communion today, as people come up to the front and get prayed for by the elders of the church, Lord, help us to have strength and endurance and diligence. And for everyone in this room that doesn't believe in you yet, God, I just pray that they keep looking for the truth. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. It's in your name that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, there's communion all the way around you. Help yourself. There's people up here on the left and right to pray for you if you need prayer. I love you guys so much. Have a great week.